Yeah, you know, I mentioned that in the last podcast. I mentioned that I went to a therapist, and it was really the first time I got honest about my use of pornography. And like I said in the last podcast, I did minimize it. What's also true is he didn't follow up with questions. He didn't ask me some of the specifics. And I often tell men that here at Faithful and True, we're going to ask you the detail questions. And we believe it's important that we talk about the details because one, our shame is in the details. Plus the other piece is if addiction is trying to meet a legitimate need in an illegitimate way, in a repetitive pattern, the things that we are drawn towards repetitively will reveal to us what that legitimate need is that we've sexualized. So we don't ask the questions to be nosy or invasive. We ask the questions because we understand that's one of the ways that we're able to get to the answers that were going to be helpful to set you free. Welcome to the Faithful and True Podcast. We are back for part two of a podcast that we began last week in which Dr. Greg Miller is talking with Jim Farm, Josh Boone, and Russ Smith from the staff of men's counselors here at Faithful and True. They uh, started the conversation on our last show by talking about what was helpful to them when they began their healing journey, and that evolved into what was not helpful as they were trying to make their way through their healing journey from sexual addiction. Here now is part two of the Faithful and True podcast. So um, again, we're continuing our conversation about um, what was helpful for men early in recovery, what was not helpful for men early in recovery. And again, I have Russ, who's a part of the Faithful and True team. He serves as a coach. He and Susie see couples as well as he works with men individually and leads groups. Um, Josh is also with us. He's a pastoral counselor and he works with um, individual men as well as lead group. And one of the things to be aware of is we do groups here locally in Eden Prairie as well as lead groups um, using technology. So men from around the country and at times the world are able to participate. And then we have Jim, our clinical director. Jim is a CSAT and um, he also works with couples, individuals, and then works with men in community. So we're very glad that y'all are here to continue our conversation. And if you're just joining us, we left off at our last podcast beginning the conversation of what does it look like to find good help? Um, a lot of the things when I was asking men what was helpful was, you know, what wasn't helpful in getting ready for this podcast. One of the resounding themes was getting good help early um, was something that they wished they had done differently. And so for some men, they kind of have to wander in the wilderness of help in order to find some things that um, will be beneficial. So let's just open it up. What have you heard or what did you experience? What are some of the indicators that the help being offered might not be that helpful? I think one of the things I hear is no one ever asked them about their, their sexuality. Okay. Never asked them. You know, they'll say, no one's ever asked me the questions you ask me. Yeah, well, that, I always see that as an affirmation. Yeah. When a guy goes, nobody has ever asked me that before, I go, well, you're in the right place. Because <laughs> you have an answer. Yeah. yeah, so that's, I mean, that's common quite a bit. It just, because if you don't have that history, 
Um, quite frankly, I don't think a lot of programs talk about sex addiction or mm -hmm. sex. I mean, they might have a sexuality course, but I think, you know, a lot of folks, you know, it's not a part of their mm -hmm. diagno diagnostic, you know, things that they look for when someone comes in to see them. Right. Unless you specialize like we do, where we just, I mean, we're just going to ask you. Yeah, we start with that. <laughs> <question. laughs> That's right. Before you even introduce yourself. You just assume you're going to be honest. Yeah, I mentioned that in the last podcast. I mentioned that I went to a therapist, and it was the, really the first time I got honest about my use of pornography. And like I said in the last podcast, I did minimize it. What's also true is he didn't follow up with questions. He didn't ask me some of the specifics. And I often tell men that here at Faithful and True, we're going to ask you the detail questions. And we believe it's important that we talk about the details because one, our shame is in the details. Plus the other piece is if addiction is trying to meet a legitimate need in an illegitimate way, in a repetitive pattern, the things that we are drawn towards repetitively will reveal to us what that legitimate need is that we've sexualized. So we don't ask the questions to be nosy or invasive. We ask the questions because we understand that's one of the ways that we're able to get to the answers that were going to be helpful to set you free. Yeah. So if you're going to someone and they seem hesitant to talk about sexuality, um, they don't know really how to engage you in a conversation, that may be a good indication that that person ultimately isn't going to be helpful for you. Yeah, because there's, there's a reason that those behaviors are being chosen. Right. You know, and being curious about that. Mm -hmm. You know, as a, as the therapist, you know, but also, you know, for the, our listeners to be curious, why did I choose this? Mm -hmm. You know, and that's really why we ask those detailed questions. Right. Yeah, I think... In my experience, I went to three different pastors, so working as a pastoral counselor here now, um, part of that is uh, I have some heartache. I went to three different pastors at different stages of my acting out trying to get help, and they didn't know what they were doing. They, they intended the best, they wanted the best. Um, one of them gave me the advice to well, maybe you just love beauty, and so maybe there's this positive role that art can play, which uh, now doing some art therapy, you know, it's like, well, <laughs> right. but that's not what he was talking about. Right. And it felt so much more of the, oh, that's a really tough thing here. We'll pray, we'll, we'll, we'll talk, and, and that was it. And it actually justified in my head the message, nobody can help you, which is actually, I'll be honest, well, for me, it was actually the, so that message that I can't get help, that I'm beyond help was actually the other side of the coin that said, phew, mm -hmm. because this was before we had a crash and burn that was public that we had to address because God took the uh, invitation and uh, it said, actually, I'm going to make it a public invitation right. just for you. And uh, I wasn't ready. I loved my reputation more than I loved the idea of getting help. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I have to own that that was the other side of the same coin. One side of it said, oh, I can't get help. But the, it was the exact same thinking that said, phew. Right. And so I don't go get the good help that I know I need because that might put my reputation Right. Well, what, what may also be true is if we believe that we are hopeless 
And I think that's one of the shame messages that a lot of men who show up at Faithful and True believe is, I am hopeless, I am beyond help. What can be true is, um, it's like having a terminal cancer diagnosis where they've told you there's nothing else that we can do for you, then you just surrender to that reality and just wait for the inevitable death. And so one of the things I would say about good hope, uh, good help, is in order for it to be good help, there must always be hope. That if anybody is telling you that there isn't a way forward, that there isn't transformation, um, I, I would say not only are they saying a lie about addiction, but they're also saying a lie about God. You know, one of the things that I often remind men of is there is nothing that is too much for God. There is nothing beyond God's grace. And so therefore, if you are seeing someone or talking to someone and their message is you simply have to learn to live with this, and you simply have to learn to accommodate it, that's not going to be very helpful because ultimately that's not very hopeful. Yeah, and I think there's that message that says, well, you know, every man's mad. Like, mm -hmm, well, right. this is just part of being a man. And so, and so you feel this, you feel torn inside because a part of you wants that message to justify acting out. And a part of you just wants to be free. Right. And you get stuck in those. And when you're stuck in those places, that's a good indicator that you need to talk to somebody else right. who knows better. And you need to keep talking to somebody else and then some, until you find the help that you need. I think that's a general principle about any kind of help is that when you're um, meeting with somebody and you're leaving, you should be leaving with something, mm -hmm. a plan of some kind, something that you have to do. Because you're not going to get better meeting with somebody even once a week. Mm -hmm. right? An hour a week isn't going to help. Mm -hmm. So you need to be having somebody that's challenging you to work on things in between the times that you're meeting. Um, I would say the other principle is you need to uh, have somebody that's addressing things in a global way. Um, so I do think it's important to have groups as part of the program. And I do think that the group shouldn't just be an educational group. Uh, I've heard a lot of men that have, have gone and they don't bring their own issues, they don't bring their own topics, they don't talk about their own challenges, they just go and they learn things. And, and I don't think that's enough either. Right, no, I, I often say you cannot learn your way into recovery. That I have to be present in order to be transformed. In fact, we talk about here at the workshop that it begins with a sense of safety, because if I'm safe enough, then I will be vulnerable enough so that I can be transformed enough. Mm -hmm. And then I hear that invitation to greater vulnerability. But if I'm going to a therapist or if I'm going to a group and I'm not expected or I'm not choosing to be vulnerable, then it makes sense that the transformation I'm experiencing is very limited. I think one of the practical things you just mentioned, Russ, that's helpful early on is actually having a plan, right? You know. Mm -hmm. Uh, a practical plan. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, yeah, I, I'm, I'm surprised at the number of times people will come in and they've been, you know, trying to get sober. And I say, well, what's your plan? And uh, they say, well, you mean other than trying to be sober? Right. <laughs> I said, right. yeah, yeah, something beyond that. Or they might have a plan, but it's in their head. I said, do you have a written plan? Uh, no, I've never written it down. Well, if you haven't written it down, it's not really a plan. Um, and if you haven't written it down, you have nothing to show your wife that what your plan is. Uh, and, and that could take us off in another direction about how to develop a plan. But yeah, you need to have a plan uh, to get sober. Yeah. When, one thing I would also say, I've heard a lot of men talk about going to a therapist, a good therapist, a, uh, a therapist with a good reputation, and that therapist approach was more passive. 
where the client brings in the conversation, the client brings in the agenda, um, the therapist waits for the client to respond. Um, and that, that's a modality that works in a lot of situations. What's true though is I often say if you are drowning, you need someone who knows how to swim and that will show you how to swim, not just talk about the components of water. And so getting someone that will be very active, I, I, I will in a kind way say I am directive, you know, I really provide some direction because I know that's one of the things that I needed early on. I had a lot of good people in my life when I first started. What I needed was some more directive people in my life, not in a bossy, controlling way, but just in a way to say, I think this is a good next step for you. Why don't you go and try that? And I had some of that and I got a taste of it when I realized I needed more of that. And you can think of it as structure too, I think, right. because you come in in such chaos and everything's swirling around and if somebody just says, well, what do you think you should do? Yeah. Um, that, that doesn't help with the chaos. So to have some structure and say, hey, you know, we've, we've, we do this right here and we know that this works and this is where we start. And, you know, sometimes we say stop the bleeding, right? You, you yeah. just want to stop the bleeding and then we kind of reassess and, and go yeah. from there. I, um, part of my life exploding, I was seeing a therapist. And I'll just say, if you're not being honest with your therapist, it's not going to work. <laughs> and I wasn't being honest with the therapist. Yeah. And she would begin our appointments with, what do you want to talk about today? Yeah. And I always thought, that's a silly question. I want to talk about the weather. I want to yeah. talk about, you know, how are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> I want to talk about your life. Yeah, you're a pastor. Um, you're inquiring. Uh, yeah. what, I, what I needed and what would have been helpful is that question of what do you not want to talk about today? Mm -hmm. What would you rather avoid? What do you not want to look at? What creates chaos for you? What are you afraid of? That's what I needed to be invited towards. Mm -hmm. And I think that one of the things that you can be aware of is if your recovery isn't making you uncomfortable, it probably won't be effective. That at every place where we're comfortable, there can be that place where we're going back to what is familiar. And so there needs to be, not in this overwhelming, I'm drowning, but each step in recovery is a kind of an uncomfortable step because it's a new step if it's going in a new direction yeah and i think it's important to note when we talk about it being difficult being challenging we're not talking a kind of asceticism you know like i need to get the whip out right you know it's I, not oh, I need to punish myself i need you know if i'm not miserable then i'm not really doing recovery which kind of goes along with Sometimes your wife wants you to be miserable, you know, right. so if I'm miserable enough, then both I'm doing recovery and now my wife will like me again because I'm desperate for that. Uh, it's talking about these things that we said last time about uh, walking into community, pursuing safe right. attachments and healthy learning, healthy intimacy. It's those dynamics, learning to reclaim my strengths which is really uncomfortable for right. a lot of us. What was, so, what was the most uncomfortable thing for you? You remember? Well, there's a, there's a long list. <laughs> um, for me, actually, a lot of the most uncomfortable stuff had to do with body image issues. Yeah. Um, because they're not talked about with men nearly as often. It's starting to be more now. Um, but I had very serious body shame issues my whole life. Um, and 
I, I would look in the mirror and see my 13-year-old self, which is where a lot of uh, terrible things mm -hmm. happened to me. And it kind of froze there. And right. it didn't matter what I was doing, how much I was lifting weight, you know, it didn't matter. I looked and I saw that. And I never thought of that as a part of my acting out, but it most certainly was. Mm. And so coming to make peace with my, it may sound odd and maybe a completely different subject than we talked about, but, but that was actually one of the most challenging things for me to be walking towards was I'm walking towards making peace with my body as right. a gift. Well, and let's just say you're, you're preaching to the choir here because my doctoral work was in embodiment theology. So mm -hmm. I, I absolutely get that. In fact, that's one of the things that we talk about at the workshop is if I don't reconcile myself to the truth of who I am physically and I don't understand how myself perception of my body is influencing my acting out, I'll never completely get free. In fact, um, a while ago, um, Jim and I did a podcast on body dysmorphia, specifically for men, yeah. because so much of what we hear about are some of the images and, and standards that women have, which is absolutely true. And what we're also seeing is with the rise of the internet, even if there's no significant um, body trauma, just with the rise of the internet and the projection of the idealized body, a lot of the men who come to our workshop, one of the things that we talk about is part of your motivation for acting out is you're either trying to get some sort of affirmation that you are enough and you are desirable, or for those men that had some sort of level of success with who they are physically as they've aged, one of the things that they're wanting from their addiction is some sort of validation that they still got it. Mm -hmm. But if I don't understand my body shame, I'm not going to understand the way that it influences the way I act out and what I believe about myself. And again, if shame is a lie I believe about myself, it's also a lie I believe about God. I cannot believe a lie about creation without believing a lie about the Creator. Mm -hmm. one, one other thing I would say, is, and this is kind of, so what do we look for? If you're working with a therapist or you're in a community and they're not talking about who you are physically or how you perceive yourself physically, they're not encouraging you to engage and live in an embodied way, that ultimately probably isn't going to be helpful. Now, you don't have to do it your first session and somewhere in the recovery journey that that's going to come up. Yeah. Can I... Can I because I don't want to run out of time without addressing this helpful thing. I'm okay, absolutely. So I'm gonna, assert I'm, yourself. So I'm going to assert myself. <laughs> so I think one of the more unhelpful things is early in recovery, guys pushing for sex. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this is what they're really not going to like. One of the things we, we like guys to do early on is a 90-day abstinence contract. Right. It's, nobody wants to hear that. You know, well, you know, it's interesting because in group last night, we had 12 guys there. And uh, the, the one thing that everybody agreed on that was not that was helpful was abstinence. Mm -hmm. and, and the guys that felt really strongly about it were the guys that were initially pressing for it the most. Yeah. You know, that they, they found that unhelpful, and then the flip side, they feel very passionate that that was a big part of their recovery, was allowing their brain to Well, remember out. that one shame message, right? Sex is my greatest need, right? right? And so, you know, if you know, that's off the table, mm -hmm. you know, and, and they're not really understanding emotional intimacy, it really lives in a hard spot. Well, and so what we would say, 
again, something that's not helpful is if you're getting coaching or direction that the way you resolve your addiction is through more sex. And we hear stories of pastors and resources that talk about more sex is the answer, but it's kind of like telling the alcoholic that drinking more is the way you're going to resolve your alcoholism. It simply doesn't work. And so yeah. to be able to say, okay, for these 90 days or however long it takes, I'm going to step away from engaging in intentional sexuality with my spouse so that I can begin to see myself more clearly, I can begin to see my spouse more clearly, and I can begin to understand the nature of intimacy and sexuality more clearly. As long as I'm engaged in it, I'm going to be continuing to see it through the lens of the chaos. Yeah, yeah and I'll throw another plug for community here, because if you're doing that as a part of a group that's a really safe group, therapy, a structured group, they know that you're in the middle of that. And to be able to do that while you're surrounded with a bunch of other men who have done that, who know how hard it is and can uh, make jokes about it, make, you know, just, right. just make it a real kind of activity, uh, it means it's a different kind of experience. So now you're getting, I'm weaning myself off the drug that I've gone to for the validation, for the, I, I don't know if I'm enough if I don't get this, right. um, justified through biological ex excuses. Yeah. Um, but then you're also bringing that into the community. And by the end of 90 days, if you've been able to do both of those, you've taken a huge step. I think that's a great one. Well, I think one of the most clarifying things, if we want to understand our relationship with someone, we temporarily remove it because then some things begin to expose about how we use it or need it or resource it or um, the various ways that we're trying to pickpocket something from it. And so what happens for a lot of men is they don't fully see the power of their addiction until they do that season of abstinence and they're not engaging in sexuality. Because for a lot of men, they may tell themselves, well, I'm just oversexed, or I just have a high testosterone, or biologically, I just need a lot of sex. And so it's not until they're no longer engaging in sexuality with their spouse and, and no one else, that they be, including themselves, they begin to see how powerful sex is and what begins to get stirred up in them, that fear, that panic, that insecurity, that lone, all the stuff they've been medicating by sexually acting out is now beginning to be exposed. And, you know, I often say that when you want your pain medication the most is when you are in pain. And you don't understand your dependency upon the pain medication until you start experiencing the pain. But I think there is a biological component of this. We are resetting our brain to a certain degree. And so that, that's an important part of that, you know, is that it is changing the brain with that abstinence. But the other part of this that's I really enjoy is when couples really focus in on that emotional connection. Mm -hmm. Actually, their sexual drive starts to increase at the end of the 90 days because right. they're feeling closer. Right. And so it's that emotional connection that's now driving the sexual Right. Drive. It's no longer some sort of addiction energy or some sort of biological energy. It is now the desire to genuinely connect with each other. Yeah. And that creates a greater sense of intimacy and moves them towards what God intended. Well, that's putting it into the context of the kind of work that we're doing both individually and in groups with men here at Faith One True. It's not 90, you know, the abstinence thing is not just a negative work. Those 90 days, you're also doing all of these kinds of things and learning how to do 
pursue intimacy and have good conversations. So it is, it's not just stop having sex for that amount of time. It's, it's one of the pieces of this complex thing of early recovery. Mm -hmm. And those first 90 days, that's early recovery. That's right. That's well, one of the, Mark would often talk about the scripture and talk about, you don't just make this unilateral decision. It is in conversation with your spouse. Yeah. Together you come to this Before agreement. Time. And if you're going to take something out, you bring something in. So if historically we've tried to use sex to create connection and intimacy, and we're going to remove that, then what are the other ways that we can share and be together that are non-sexual? So it's not just remove it. It's not just a negative thing. And I'm glad that you mentioned that, Josh. It's also this positive, I'm, I'm going to remove this for a season, and we're going to move towards this either for a season or permanently. I think okay. Go ahead. okay, I'm just going to say we have a few more minutes left. So in those few minutes, is there anything, that, okay, here we have some options. We can come back and do another podcast, or if there's just some things you want to drop in that you have heard or that you are aware of, that it's not helpful, and men have identified that or it was true for you. Yeah. I, I have one thing for sure. Okay. I mean, I could go. I mean, I have a list. Here. Okay. Do your one thing for sure, and then we may come back to your list. Okay. Well, I think the one thing is is guys, if they're in a marriage or relationship, to keep their word even with the small stuff. Okay. If I'm going to be home, if I tell my wife I'm going to be home at six, I would be home at six. Because if I'm home at six thirty, right? Once again, I I haven't I haven't let Mark always used to say, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Right. And so I'm setting her up to not trust me. So even on the small stuff, right. I think a lot of guys let go of the small stuff. It's like, well, I'm just going to be 15 minutes late. Mm -hmm. Well, 15 minutes late, what's happening to your wife's thoughts during those 15 minutes? I think along with that is starting to be more uh, firm about what you are promising. It's because our, our tendency to be passive goes like, well, I'm going to be home between here and here, somewhere like that. And that gives you an out, right? right. Um, so to, be, to start to be more decisive. Um, we talk about radical honesty as well, and one of the things I know I realized, I didn't realize until recovery, was how much I lied about everything. Mm -hmm. Not just about sex, I mean everything. And one of the stories that they always get a kick out of, and I don't know, probably maybe told it here before, but uh, I used to go to the gas station and uh, to get gas in the car. Susie doesn't like putting gas in the car, but my real reason for going is I'm a, I'm a Coke and a Reese's peanut butter cup guy. <laughs> I'm assuming Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola. <laughs> That's true. Coca we just want to clarify. <laughs> Thank you, Greg. Uh, so I would go there, and if I if I went there, and I and we lived far enough away that I could finish the Coke and the peanut butter cup before I got home. Sure. And then I could, you know. Get rid of the evidence, right? In the garbage can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I I I, I hid that. You know, it wasn't an active lie, but it was hiding, right? Mm -hmm. And so, and I part of recovery was oh, that's not good. You know, I need to be open about this. Even she didn't care yeah. whether I did that or not, but I hid it. You know, it just didn't make any sense. And that's just one example. But well, I want to say this: it does make sense because. For most of us who struggle with addiction, hiding and lying and deception was our first way to create safety. Mm -hmm. And I would say 17 years in recovery, that continues to be the thing that I have to work on. Mm -hmm. Because if whatever you learn first is typically what is, I often heard Mark say this, whatever you learn first is typically what is most powerful. Mm -hmm. And so whatever we first did to create safety will be the thing that is most difficult to give up. 
Okay, Josh, anything you want to drop in before? Yeah, I'll just say one, the one thing that I, it's a completely different subject. Um, I had jotted down stilling the lawyer in your head. And so all of us have, I, I call it the lawyer in the head, um, to separate it from conscience. Uh, this voice, uh, I, I get a lot of people early in recovery saying, well, I, I don't, you know, does this count as pornography? Does this count as pornography? Mm. And the lawyer in the head is in there uh, either condemning it, yes, how dare you, or nah, no, it's okay, mm -hmm. we won't count it as pornography. And I think either option, uh, fixating on either one, we just need to say we don't need that lawyer in our head. Right. Especially early in recovery where it says, no, that's the wrong question to be asking right now. Mm -hmm. I can come to my group and I can ask that question, uh, but what better is to come to the group and say, hey guys, this is one of the behaviors I've been doing and this is actually who I want to be. Is the, and so, you know, that right. lawyer in your head, that it actually ends up isolating you because either one of those options can move towards isolation and shame. And so just saying, okay, there is that lawyer in my head He's not going to serve me well. Right. What I need is community. When, one final thing I would say is if you're questioning, should I share this with the community? Typically the answer yeah. is yes. Um, if it's something you don't want to share with the community, right. then yeah. yes, you share with the community. Yeah. If it creates anxiety for you, then yes, it's something that you share with the community. That's right. I think that's the radical honesty part. Right. right. Yeah, it's similar. yeah. If you're not sure, be honest. Okay, well guys, thanks for coming back. Yeah, Who knows, there may be a part three in us somewhere, and so we may be back together. But thanks again for your time this afternoon. And we hope that this has been meaningful and helpful for those of you that have been listening and watching the Faithful and True podcast. Thank you for joining us today on the Faithful and True podcast. We hope that this two-part series uh, has been beneficial to you. Dr. Greg Miller, Jim Farm, Russ Smith and Russ and Josh Moon, all from the staff here at Faithful and True, uh, have shared some valuable experience with you on what was most helpful and what was not helpful when they first began their healing journey from sexual addiction. We hope that this has been compelling and helpful to you. We also invite you to visit faithfulandtrue.com where you'll find many resources to help you if you have identified a struggle that you're ready to finally address, we invite you to click on the workshops and click on the Men's Journey Workshop, in which you'll find lots of information about this three-day event that we offer every month here at Faithful and True. We'd love to have you come and attend and jumpstart your healing journey today. Until then, we hope that this coming week will be a week that is filled with many blessings and with great vision.